Before the break, we reviewed the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, where we uh, defined for practical purposes love as a thought-action phenomenon that involves a subject and object whereby the object is benefited. We also indicated that the general message of that section is this, that you, you should taste your claim of love by comparing your love to the positive and negative um, characteristics of love provided in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, 7 particularly. So we began, actually, with the fifth negative description of love that was concerned with being self-centered. Because of 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, it's not self-seeking. Literally, the Greek, of course, reads, not seek the things of itself. So the apostle is concerned to state that love is concerned with interests and welfare of others when you have love. Now the does the Holy Spirit is not really saying to you that you that a person with love should not be concerned with the person's interests, but that the person should be concerned with others and not be self-centered so that the individual is concerned with the affairs of others as well. The sixth negative characteristic or description is concerned with not being quick to respond uh, negatively to provocations as in that uh, passage 1 Corinthians 15 5 says it is not easily angered. So we indicated that if you love, you're not quick to respond to any provocation or irritation by the object of your love. The seventh, seventh description, negative of course, description of love, is concerned with unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, which again is given in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5. He says, it reads, it keeps no record of wrong. So we reviewed what forgiveness is to help us understand what unforgiveness is. So we indicated that forgiveness, simple as it is, yet difficult to implement because of such uh, sayings that people have got used to forgive and forget. Uh, and so we went through to show that that it's not really what is intended here. That forgiveness means to remove the guilt, the guilt resulting from wrong done to you. Because anytime a person does something wrong, then that person is guilty. And that guilt requires some kind of punishment or payment of some form. So when we forgive somebody, we free them of all the negative consequences of their action towards us. Now, so when you forgive them, you do not at that time do anything that will bring back the penalty associated with what the forgiveness of whatever you, you have given to a person. So you let go the penalty that's associated with that guilt. So when, again, 
forgiveness does not really mean that you will ever erase from your mind the wrong done to you. You will always remember that. But what happens is when you remember it, what do you do? If you take an action that doesn't bring back that negative consequence, then you you forgiven the person. And you have to repeat that I mean, periodically. Because the, the thought of what the person did to you is always going to be there. It's not going to vanish. And that's one the thing that we try to emphasize. So then, unforgiveness is simply the opposite of what we said about forgiveness. And so, uh, we started to examine the Greek word because it says keeps no wrong. So we started to look at the Greek word, the expression keeps no wrong. And the last meaning we gave before going to break is that the Greek word may mean to give careful thought to a matter. And so may mean to ponder, to think about. And that is when I cited Second Corinthians chapter 10 verse 7 where we begin our second session where the apostle of course was uh, indicating or uh, telling those who are superficial in their thinking spiritually that they are, he and his team belong to Christ. So we read you are looking only on the surface of things if anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, he should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as he. So in our passage of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, the Greek word translated uh, keep, uh, to keep count in the NIV and so on, really it has a sense of to tally, to tally, that is, to keep account of something in order to determine the sum or the total. So the thing that is to be tallied is described then in the passage we're studying First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5 with the word wrongs, wrongs. That is translated from a Greek adjective that refers to that which is socially or morally uh, reprehensible, hence me evil, bad. But it also refers to that which is harmful or injurious. So when the word is used as a noun, it refers to what is contrary to custom or law, hence means evil or wrong. As the word is used by some of the Pharisees who heard of the defense of Apostle Paul regarding the charge brought against him before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 23 verse 9. Acts chapter 23 verse 9. Acts 23 verse 9 reads, there was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man. That's a word wrong here. 
they said, what if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? So in our passage of First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, the Greek word kakos is used in the sense of morally objectionable behavior. Morally objectionable behavior, which then may mean evil or simply wrong. Be that as it may, when Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, he keeps, that is love, he keeps no record of wrongs. He meant that love does not hold unforgiving the person who does it evil. Of course, there are those who understand the apostle to be saying that love does not think about how to harm uh, others. Now this is possible because of, because of the meaning of the Greek uh, verb used here. Nonetheless, because this letter interpretation is subsumed in the interpretation that we gave, it is better to understand that the apostle to be saying that love does not hold unforgiving the person who does it evil. So this means that the apostle conveyed that if a person has love, then the person who does uh, uh, who has love or a person has love then, that there may be a person that we're looking at for what he's done to you. So it means that as the apostle conveyed that if a person has love, then the person who has it does not go on tallying the wrongs done to the individual or fail to forgive. Now you know, there are people who have a, they have a, uh, thoughts of how they have been wronged by someone for a long time. Such individuals could not possibly love the offender. If you have a thought about how you've been um, offended, you can never love that person. Furthermore, there are those who actually write in their personal journals when and where a person has wronged them. Such individuals do not have love for those that wrong them. Just cannot happen. They can try to play what they want. It will not. Now, what love will mean that when a person wrongs you, you forgive, but that does not mean that you have erased the wrong in your memory or from your memory. Doesn't mean that. So, however, when I, when the individual wrongs you at another time, you will not dredge the previous wrong done to you, so that, so as to act in a way that does not indicate forgiveness of wrongdoing. If you do then you are guilty of keeping records of wrong done to you. 
So anyhow, the seventh negative description of love is concerned with unforgiveness. So it is this description that is given in the last sentence again of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13 verse 5 where it reads, It keeps no record of wrongs. So again, I emphasize that love will mean that when a person wrongs you, you forgive, but that does not mean that you have erased that from your memory. You forgive, you don't hold the penalty or consequences to that person. You remove that guilt. You don't exert the penalty due to guilt. The eighth negative characteristic or description of love is concerned with response towards unrighteousness. How you respond towards some unrighteousness. It is this description that is given in the first sentence of First Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6 where we're starting. Look at the first sentence. It says, Love does not delight in evil. Love does not delight in evil. Now the word love, of course, does not really appear in the Greek of this verse, but it is understood that the apostle is still dealing with the subject of love that he introduced in verse 4. Therefore, the use of the word love here in the NIV is a way to help the reader remember that the apostle is still dealing with love. Again, we should emphasize that the apostle continued to indicate that what he states is absolute and that love could not in any way do what is stated in the sentence that we're considering since he used a strong negative U in the Greek that is an objective negative denying in uh, the reality of alleged fact fully and absolutely in contrast to uh, another Greek negative may that is really a subjective negative meaning or implying a conditional and hypothetical uh, negation so the negative the apostle used here shuts down the possibility that a person who has love is characterized by a positive response to what the NIV describes as evil. Now the positive response, the apostle says it's impossible to what the NIV describes as evil is really given in the word delight. Delight. Now that word delight is translated from a Greek word that may mean to rejoice, to be glad. That is to be, of course, in a state of happiness and well-being. It may refer to the opposite of weeping or mourning as it is used in Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. 
with rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. So our word here, rejoice. Now, the, of course, the word may mean to be glad, as Apostle Paul used it to describe his confidence regarding the Corinthians, as we read in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse sixteen. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse sixteen, and hold on to that. I pick up another verse in that chapter. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse sixteen reads, I am glad, that's a Greek word. Cairo. I am glad. I can have complete confidence in you. Now the word may mean to delight, alright, as Apostle Paul used it to express his state because of the experience of Titus, as he stated in the same second Corinthians chapter seven, look at verse. 13. Look at verse 13. It is by all this we are encouraged. In addition to our encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. Now the word may be used for a formalized greeting. The Greek word Cairo may be used for greeting or wishing one well. Now does the word may mean to hail, to hail. As it is used in the greeting of the soldiers who mocked Jesus before his crucifixion as recorded in Mark chapter 15, verse 18. Mark chapter 15, verse 18. Mark chapter 15, verse 18. It is... And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Of course, they, you know, they, those are those kind of things when you look at it. They thought they were mocking him by bowing down and worshipping him. But they were actually worshipping him because he's God. But in their mind, they were mocking him. That's what they thought. But that didn't change the fact that he's God and they're actually worshipping him without knowing that they are, in a sense. Anyway, in the same usage, though, the word may mean to welcome, to welcome, as in giving full acceptance to those who promote false teaching, as we read in Second John 10 and 11. Second John, that's only one chapter of an epistle, so 10 and 11 mean verses 10 and 11. Second John, the epistle, Second John 10, I mean, and 11 reads, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. 
That's why Greek word Cairo. But here it's from welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. Now the Greek word may mean to gloat, to gloat, as it is used to describe the response of people in the future regarding the date of the two witnesses that God will send on this planet or to preach the gospel to the world as we read in Revelation chapter 11 verse 10. They will be gloating when they die. Revelation chapter 11 verse 10. It is the inhabitants of the earth will gloat. That's a Greek word, Cairo. But here it's going to gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts. Because these two prophets have tormented those who live on the earth. <laughs> I mean, they did some miraculous things to torment people too, but just the idea of telling them the truth, that was tormenting to them. Today, of course, you know, if you tell the truth, you're described as the most hateful person on the planet. But that shouldn't keep us from telling the truth. Anyway, in our first, uh, passage of First Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, the word means to rejoice, to rejoice. That is to feel happiness or joy or to take pleasure. Now, the thing that a person that has love does not feel happy or take pleasure in is given in the NIV with the word evil. Now that word evil is translated from a Greek word that may mean, this one is the first one, kakios, but this one is adakia. And this word means uh, an act that violates standards of right conduct. That is, it means wrong or wrongdoing, as the apostle used it sarcastically with the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. Second Corinthians. Chapter 12, verse 13. It reads, Here, I mean, how were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. That's been sarcastic. <laughs> you were supposed to support him. He said, I didn't take it from you. So forgive me, I've wronged you. And you know he is sarcastic. Now the word may mean harm, as it is used by Apostle Peter, to in effect apply the spiritual law of sowing and reaping to false teachers, as we read in 
second peter chapter 2 verse 13 second peter chapter 2 verse 13 It is Second Peter chapter two verse thirteen reads They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. That word harm is a Greek word adakia. The idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes revelling in their pleasures while they feast with you. Now the Greek word may mean unrighteousness, unrighteousness, as that which the believer is cleansed from upon confession of sin, as the word is used in First John chapter 1, verse 9. First John chapter 1, verse 9. Again, that reads, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, every now and then we need to be reminded what that means is, suppose you sin now and you didn't remember you sin or for some reason you just ignored your sin. And then you go for another 10, 15 minutes, or even, who knows, the whole day. And suddenly, you remember, at that point, you remember, I have your sin. And you say, Father, I've messed up. You confess it. As soon as you do that, the ones that you haven't confessed, he was a claim. That's grace. That's what's called grace. That's one that you. That's one is all unrighteousness. It's not just the one you confess; it's the one you haven't even confessed. Again, that's His grace that He can do that. Anyway, in our passage of First Corinthians chapter thirteen verse six, the Greek word means refers to the quality of injustice, the quality of injustice, and so it means unrighteousness. That is again failure to adhere. To moral principles, commands, or laws. In any case, when the apostle wrote in the words of the NIV of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6, again he said, Love does not delight in evil. He meant that anyone who has love will not take pleasure. In any kind of unrighteousness, such as injustice or wickedness. Now the person does not share the joy of those who gloat regarding injustice done to another, to another person. Now it is usually when a person does not love that the individual takes pleasure in any kind of unrighteousness or injustice. Now this we can learn from the pleasure or the delight of the Jewish chief priests 
and learning that Judas Iscariot was willing to betray Jesus Christ according to Mark chapter 14 verses 10 and 11. Mark chapter 14 verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11 reads, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now you see, it is because the chief priests hated Jesus that they were delighted that one of his disciples would betray him. Betrayal is an awful thing. So how can you be delighted to see somebody betray another person? Except that you hate the person that is being betrayed. Now it's also because of hatred that many rejoiced when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, as he predicted, of course, will be the case, when he indicated that the world will rejoice while his disciples will be grieved by grief, as recorded in John chapter 16, verse 20. John chapter 16, verse 20. John chapter 16 verse 20. It is, I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now since we indicated that the Descriptions the apostle gave about love are to enable us to test if we love someone, we could use the simple test of how we react to injustice or wickedness or harm brought on others. If you see injustice, how do you react? The way you react is whether you love the person or you don't. So, if we're really not appalled by injustice or wickedness shown to some, uh, another person, then there should be a clear indication of lack of love. If you love someone, you will not want anything that will harm the individual, including, as we have stated, injustice. So anyway, the eighth negative description of love is concerned with response towards unrighteousness given in that first sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6 against a love 
does not delight in evil. Love does not delight in evil. Anyway, the apostle, having stated the eighth negative description associated with love, signaled to us that he was about now to change from the negative to the positives. Now this he did with the conjunction but that begins the next clause of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6. Now the word but that begins that clause is translated from a Greek conjunction that may be used to connect one clause to another either to express uh, contrast or simple continuation. But in certain occurrences the marker may be left untranslated. Although it's often translated both in our English versions when there is a clear, clearly perceived contrast between two clauses, it also has other meanings such as now, then, or so, which when it is really used to mark the link uh, of between segments of narratives. And the Greek uh, word can also be used to indicate transition to something new or even to provide explanation to what precedes its use. Nonetheless, in our verse that is used, the Greek conjunction is really used as a marker of contrast to indicate that what follows, I mean, that what follows are contrasted with the previous descriptions. Now, up to this point, in the apostle's description of love, he had not used any connectives, even when he moved from the positive description given uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 to the negative. He never used any connection. Now, the only indicator that the apostle was moving from positive to negative uh, description is the Greek word ou or not that had uh, that began the third sentence of verse 4. So, why then did the apostle introduce the conjunction but at this point in the description of love? How did he do that? You know, this he went from positive to negative, no change. He used just the word not, but here he puts the word but to tell us he's going to something else. So, why? Well, there are two possible reasons, at least two possible reasons. First, it is probably because there is a connection between the two verbs he used in the previous clause and the clause that follows. See, he used the word delight in the first clause and the word rejoice in the second. Now, the two verbs convey similar concepts. So, if you recall, the word delight is translated from a Greek word, kairo, that also means to rejoice, as a second Greek word that we will examine shortly. Doesn't indicate that his rejoice in the first clause is different from that of the second, the apostle used the conjunction but. 
So he rejoiced, rejoiced, but with that word, but that means there's a difference now between the first rejoice and the second rejoice, so to say. Second, it's also possible that the apostle wanted the reader to recognize that he used the Greek conjunction to do double duty of explanation and of providing contrast. In effect, the second clause of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verse 6, specifically the verbal phrase when it says, Rejoices with the truth, may be intended then to explain the preceding clause when it says, Love does not de- delight in evil. It doesn't delight in evil. So, but, maybe to explain it, of what love does not really do, when it comes to this matter of rejoicing over unrighteousness. Furthermore, the apostle used the conjunction but to indicate that the description of love he gives next are all positive descriptions in contrast to the negative description of love that he had given beginning with the third sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 4. So be that as he may, the apostle gave now, he gave five more additional description of love. So we will continue to examine the additional positive description of love by relating them to the first two positive descriptions in the sense that we will Continue by joining the five positive characteristics of love that begins in the second clause of verse 6 to the descriptions given in verse 4. Therefore then, since we have considered the first two, therefore the third then, the third positive description of love concerns the response of love to truth. How Love responds to truth. In effect, it is a response of love, of one with love, to truth that is given in the third positive description of love. It is this that is given then in the second clause of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6 that reads, But rejoices with truth. They rejoices with truth. Again, that word rejoices is translated from a Greek word sukairo. Sukairo. It's different from kairo that we use. And that word means to express pleasure over another, another person's good fortune. To express pleasure over somebody's good fortune. So that the world has in the sense of to congratulate someone. Now this is probably the sense of the word in describing the response of the neighbors of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, when she gave birth to her son John, according to Luke chapter 1 verse 58.
Luke chapter 1 verse 58 reads, Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord has shown her great mercy. And they shared her joy. Now that expression, shared her joy, is literally, they rejoiced with her. They rejoiced with her. In other words, they were delighted. They had pleasure that this woman, after these many years, has lost hope of having a child. Suddenly, she had a child. Because that's miraculous, anyway. Now, the Greek word may mean to experience joy in conjunction with someone. That is, to rejoice with, as that is the way the word is used in Jesus' parable of the Lordship. When the owner invited his neighbors to celebrate with him for finding his Lordship, according to Luke chapter 15. Verse 6. Luke chapter 15, verse 6. That is in a series of uh, parables that Jesus Christ described the attitude of the Father when people are saved, really. Luke chapter 15, verse 6 reads, and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. So that's what Sug Cairo. Rejoice with me. Now in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6, the world really has a sense of to experience joy in conjunction with somebody or someone, to experience joy in conjunction with someone that is then to rejoice with another or to rejoice together. Now the concept of rejoicing together with another as part of uh, the third description of love is associated with truth. As in the uh, verbal phrase again, it says First uh, Corinthians 13.6 he said, rejoices with truth. Rejoices with truth. Now the word truth here is translated from a Greek word, aletia, that has a range of meanings. The word may mean the quality of being in accord with what is true. Hence may mean something like truthfulness, dependability, Uprightness in thought and deed, as that's the way the word is used in Romans chapter 3, verse 7. Romans chapter 3, verse 7. Romans 3 verse 7 reads, Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases glory, 
Why am I still condemned as a sinner? Here the word is translated truthfulness. Now it is in the sense of being in accord with what is truth that Apostle Paul used it in his commendation of the Corinthians for not letting his boasting about them to Titus to turn out to be empty so that uh, he was not put to shame. In other words, the apostle had been boasting about the uh, Corinthians to Titus. Uh, Titus goes out there. He, they proved him right. In other words, they didn't act in a way that would have said, well, Paul, you just boasted for nothing. In, in other words, they didn't embarrass you know, they didn't embarrass the apostle. So that's the way it is used in Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse fourteen. Second Corinthians chapter seven, verse fourteen. He reads, I had boasted to him, him of course is Titus, about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we, we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. Now the verbal phrase has proved to be true is more literally has become truth. Has become truth. Now the Greek word may also mean reality, reality, as a, opposed to mere appearance. That's the way the Greek word is used in Colossians one six. Colossians chapter one verse six. Colossians. Colossians chapter 1 verse 6 it is that has come to you all over the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. So, truth here has a sense of reality as opposed to mere appearance. You, you, in other words, in all, in all this reality instead of just mere appearance. It's for this reason then that uh, the translators of the today's English version render the phrase in all its truth of the NIV this way as it really is. As it really is. Anyway, the Greek word that is translated truth may mean the content of what is true. And so it means truth, alright? It is in this sense that the apostle used 
the world to encourage the Ephesians and so all believers not to be involved in falsehoods as they interacted with each other in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 25. Say, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. And speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In other words, the command speak truthfully is literally speak truth. Speak truth. Now, you know, that's one of the most important things in dealing with people is being truthful. Be truthful. I know it's difficult for people to grasp that. It's very difficult to be truthful. And some people are blunt and they should be. Be truthful. Because you're not doing anyone any good by not telling the truth. How many people are being deceived because somebody tells them what's not true? A child, you know, a mother tells a child of something and he goes out there or she goes out there and acts up because of what parents say that's not true. They just laugh at the child. And now does do the same thing. Somebody flatter you, they tell you what's not true. You go wrong with it. But in the body of Christ, that is essentially important because if we're going to be the body of Christ, we cannot be deceitful to each other. Tell your brother or your sister what see the truth. Don't sugarcoat it. The truth. Painful? Yes. But the truth. I know the word though is used then especially of the content of Christianity as the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth. Now it is in this sense Apostle Paul used it in connection with the gospel in that Colossians chapter 1, but now in verse 5. Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. It reads, uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 reads, the faith and the love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth. The gospel. See, that phrase, the word of truth, the gospel, is literally the word of truth of the gospel. That's literally now, the, the rendering of the NIV is quite good because of the Greek syntax of this phrase. 
In fact, to communicate fully the idea of the Greek construction, we could really translate the Greek phrase this way. The word of truth that is the gospel. So that is referring to that the content of Christian message as the ultimate truth. So in this way then, it is clear that the word of truth here is a reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the apostle used the Greek word to refer to the Christian message then, that includes doctrine and the gospel message in Galatians chapter 5 verse 7. Galatians chapter 5 verse 7. Galatians chapter 5 verse 7 reads, You were running a good race. Who caught in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Truth here in Galatians uh, 5 verse 7 refers to the Christian message that the apostle declared to the Corinthians, I mean to the Galatians. That message includes the gospel message, the doctrine of justification by faith, and the doctrine that the filling of the Spirit is by faith. So the apostle used the Greek word rendered faith, I mean truth here, as in as a reference to the body of accepted Christian doctrines that the church is a custodian. That the body of Christian teaching that the church is a custodian is regarded as truth. And that's a Greek word that's used to describe that in First Timothy chapter three, verse fifteen. First Timothy chapter three verse fifteen. As instruction to the young pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, he says, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household which is the church of the living God. Look at the next thing there. The pillar and foundation of the truth. And that has to do with being uh, guidance of the, or custodian of the Christian doctrines. Anyway, so we have noted then the range of meanings of the Greek word translated truth in the NIV of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6. So, in what sense then is it using a passage? We are out of time. I will answer that question in the next study. However, let me end by reminding you of the message that we have been emphasizing, which is, you should test your claim of love by comparing your love to the 
positive and negative characteristics of love the Holy Spirit provides in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we have so far considered. Once you do that, you should know whether you love a person or not. Let's pray. As we end our study this morning, there may be someone here or somewhere listening over the internet that if you die now, you go straight to hell. It is mind-boggling. It is painful to think about the fact that a human being will be in a position, will be in a state where he or she is cut off from God's presence. Nothing good from God will come to a person. It is an awful place of darkness. Nothing good. It is painful to think that a person will be there throughout eternity. No more getting out. It's not like a prison where you serve the time you come out. This is forever. You must know how serious this is. How awful it is. That's why the one who created it for those who reject him, the Son of God, left heaven to come to this planet to die and pay for your sins and my sins. He came as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. He taught, preached, did miracles, and they rejected him. See what a great God he is. What a great love. He had the power to turn into dust all those who rejected him. He could do that. And say to hell with all of you. And return to heaven. He could have done that. He would have said, let all go to hell. He didn't do that. He had the power to do it. But look at the love he has for you. That love, he doesn't want you to spend eternity suffering. And that's why he endured everything he endured. They spat at him, cursed him, slapped him around. He endured it. And eventually, he was condemned to death. He marched to Golgotha, staggered on the road. And felt somebody had to help him to carry that cross to the place where he was nailed on the cross on the ground. And they lifted that up and sunk that in the ground. And that process created great distress, pain on his body. He didn't cry, he didn't complain. But the last three hours on that cross, when my sins and your sins were being poured on the Son of God, it was so unbearable that he let out that cry. Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabakatani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was forsaken for three hours by the Father and the Holy Spirit. That was so painful. That the driving of nail through his body wasn't in anything near that. You must have known 
you must now think about what it must be to be separated from God forever when his son for only three hours father could not bear that it was so painful and he did all that so that you will be united to God how? when he died he paid for our sins three days later he rose from the dead proving clearly that he has met the requirements for you to be accepted to be in good standing with God now how you go about that the Bible tells you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved what are you going to believe again the Bible says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the son of God that is to believe that he is God so believing in him you have life through his name. If you believe that he died on that cross, rose again the third day, for your sins, you will be forgiven. No matter how awful your sins must have been, you have a clean slate. He will be forgiven, never to be remembered. In other words, never to be used against you from now to all eternity. If you trust Christ as the one who paid for your sins. On the other hand, you say, well, I don't know. My friend, I know I can't paint the picture of what a horrible place hell is. But look at what you are, you are knocking at that door. You're knocking. Tomorrow is not assured to you. The next one hour is not assured to you. Next minute is not granted. So if you hear that, and you haven't believed, trust Christ, believe in Him now, and have eternal life. So that you will escape his wrath. Don't postpone it. Simply because you don't know. If this is your last time on this planet. So trust in him. Heavenly Father we are thankful for the study of your word. We pray that God the Holy Spirit will sink into our soul. These characteristics of love. So that we will use them. To judge our claim of loving anyone. So that we will honor and glorify you. And glorify your son Jesus Christ. This is our request in Christ's name. Amen.